Tonight we are going to finish up chapter 3 of Galatians, and let's pray, and we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you, and Lord, we, we do rejoice tonight in just how great your love for us is. Lord, I pray this evening as we look at your word that you would enlighten, that you would instruct as we break up in groups afterwards and talk and share and minister to one another, we pray, God, that you'd give just application and encouragement. And so, God, we give you this time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I enjoy golf. I'm not very good at it. I don't do it very often. You know, some people have this idea in their mind that pastors only work on Sunday and then they golf the rest of the week. That is not the case here. Um, I have golfed, I think, twice this whole year. Um, but my dad got me into golfing when I was a kid, and that was one of the things we loved to do together. And I just haven't done it that much since he passed. But the hardest thing to get used to when it comes to the game of golf is this, is that you don't have to swing hard. That's the key. That you don't have to swing hard, but, but it's hard to get that into your mind, especially when you're coming to like a par five, and it's 600 yards from the tee box to the green. That's six football fields, and so, you know, you take out your driver, and they give drivers names like Big Bertha, and Big Ben, and King Kong, you know, and the idea is that you just need to, to you know, whack this thing, and in your mind, you're thinking, that's so far away, and, and I just have to swing as hard as I can, but this is what my dad always told me, let the club do the work. And the club is designed, each club is designed to hit the ball a certain distance. And the reality is a good golfer will swing the same whether he's swinging on a hole that's 600 yards away or 100 yards away because he's letting the club do the work. So his swing is always the same. The same principle when you putt are the same principles that you use to drive off the tee. It's the same. And the same thing could be said to be true about the Christian life. That how you begin the Christian life is the same way that you finish it, by grace through faith. You finish the same way that you begin. And this is really at the heart of what Paul's been talking about here in Galatians chapter 3. In fact, the theme verse we looked at last week of this chapter is in verse 3, if you want to look at it. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? You see, some of the church members in the churches of Galatia had been seduced into thinking that you start the Christian life in the spirit, but you finish it in the power of your flesh. It's sort of like this. It's like the spirit is sort of a booster rocket that gets you going, but then you finish in your own energy. It's like you're the, you're, the energy of your flesh kicks in, and that's how you complete the work that the Spirit began. And Paul would say a thousand times, no, that isn't how it works. And when you think that way, that actually nullifies the grace of God and dishonors the work of Christ. 
The same way that you start is the way that you finish, by grace through faith. Now, we saw in our last study last time that Paul turned to Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham to make his point. That Abraham was justified the same way as we are. He was justified by grace through faith. By grace through faith in the work of God. And all, Paul said, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ are sons of Abraham. He's the father of faith and we become his sons and daughters. Well, tonight we're picking up in verse 15 and it seems that Paul is anticipating here two questions. And this will sort sort of be our outline for tonight. The first question is this, does the law then annul the promise of God? Since the law came after the promise to Abraham, does that mean that the law is greater than the promise and then nullifies the promise? And then the second question is this, If that is not the case, what then is the purpose of the law? And Paul's going to answer those two questions, and then he'll wrap up this section by laying out four blessings that are ours for being in Christ. And we'll see that in the final verses, in verses 26 to 29. But let's answer the first question. Does the law annul the promise? And the answer is no. Look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Here's what he's saying. I want to give you a human example. This is what he says when he says, brethren, I speak in the manner of man. I'm going to give you a human example that even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. How many of you have a living trust? Okay, most of you, a lot of you have a living trust. We have a living trust. And it's interesting, if you want to make an amendment to your living trust, you can't just do that on a napkin and stick it in a folder and, and suddenly, you know, when you die, that they're going to honor that. No, you have to go to a lawyer who's going to amend it. And this is Paul's point. You can't just, you know, just amend it. You just can't just do that. It doesn't work that way. So when there's a covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And then he says in verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And we talked about this, that God established a, an official covenant with Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But I want you to notice, notice what Paul says in the second part of verse 16, but he does not say, and to his seeds, plural. No, he says, as of many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. This is the point. The covenant that God made with Abraham was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, the coming of Christ, was the promise. He was the seed of Abraham through which all the world was going to be blessed because salvation would come into the world through the work of Jesus Christ. And we noted this last week that the promise, although it was given to Abraham 430 years prior to the giving of the law, which is Paul's point as we continue in verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Here's what Paul's saying. 
God made this promise to Abraham, and the fact that the law was given after it, promise was first, the law came second, doesn't mean that the law then cancels out or annuls the promise, and he gives us the reason for that in verse 18. He says, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Here's what he's saying. The promise was a gift. God made a promise to Abraham. The promise was a gift. Think of it this way. If I said to my son Aaron, and sometimes Aaron watches our services, so I want to just say if you're watching Aaron, I'm not saying this, okay? (laughs) But if I said to my son Aaron, when I die, I'm leaving our house to you and to Brooklyn, okay? I'm not saying that, Aaron. (laughs) All three of my kids love our house, so (laughs) I'm not leaving it. I'm not saying that, okay? But let's say if I said that and I made that promise, I'm making you this promise, that promise is a gift. But then if I said, now in order to get the house after I die, you have to faithfully perform these hundred tasks. Well, then it would no longer be a gift because it would be something that you have to earn. Or think of it in this way. If I have a gift and I say, you know, hey, I've got a gift that I'm, anybody ever do this? I got a gift for you. I stretch out my hand with this gift and you reach out to get it and I pull it back and I say, but first you've got to do X, Y, and Z, you know, kind of thing. Sometimes we do that type of thing, right? And, and, and it's suddenly it's, it's no longer a gift to become something that, that we're going to learn, that we're going to earn. Well, the promise of salvation and the inheritance that God made and promised to Abraham was a gift that in order to be received, all Abraham had to do was embrace it. All he had to do was believe in it. And the Bible tells us that Abraham believed the promise of God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. So the promise is not connected to the law. And just because the law came after the promise doesn't mean that the law nullifies the promise. That's Paul's point. Now, the next question that he answers is there in verse 19. If the law doesn't nullify the promise... But doesn't cancel out. What then is the purpose of the law? That's the obvious question. And there's a few things I want you to know. First of all, that the law, the purpose of it is it, it was given to show us our need of salvation. Notice he says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Again, the seed is Jesus, singular to whom the promise was made. Paul says it was given because of transgressions or it was given, you can think of it this way, to help us understand what a transgression is. You know, if you're driving down the highway, I was in Florida last uh Friday, and I'm driving down the highway from the airport in Orlando to Vero Beach, and I'm driving for quite a while, and I'm, I'm, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, 
traffic signs anywhere. I had no idea what the speed limit was, you know. So I'm driving. I'm hoping, you know, okay, I'm going 70. I hope I'm not speeding, you know, right now. And I'm driving down the thing. But, but I never saw a single police officer when I was there the whole time either. So I guess they don't have those and they don't have speed limits. But, uh, but you know, it's the sign that tells you 70. Oh, I'm speeding. That, it, the, it's showing you. It's the purpose of the law, to show you what a transgression is, to show you when you're getting out of line is, is the idea. And so that's the purpose of it. It was given to help us understand something about the nature of God, that we get a glimpse into the holiness of God through the law. So in a nutshell, what Paul is saying here is that the purpose of the law is, was not to bestow salvation, but to show us our need of salvation. In fact, Paul elaborates on this in the book of Romans in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. And then he says this, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, I would have not known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. In Paul's testimony, he's sharing there in Romans 7 a little bit of his testimony that, that Paul was a guy that had it really together in the flesh. I mean, he was this Pharisee, this very religious guy, and he, held, he kept the law. He says, according to the law, I was blameless. I mean, he was a guy that crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, but there was something going on in his heart that he couldn't deny. And it was something that caused him to be guilty, and it was this fact that he was covetous. He was wanting something that someone else had. Maybe it was position. Maybe it was prestige. We're we're not sure. He doesn't elaborate, but he says it was the law. If the law hadn't said you shall not covet, then I would have been in the clear. But because it said that, it condemned me. And that's the purpose of the law. Now, what's interesting here is Paul gives us a few reasons why the promise was greater than the law. And we'll see a couple of these before we move to the next purpose of the law. And and it's this, he says, the law was temporary. In other words, it was added until the seed, until Jesus came. And Jesus fulfilled the law and solved the problem that sin created, the need for a savior. That's why Jesus came on the scene. The law was temporary, but the promise in Christ is eternal. The promise has priority over the law also in how it was given. You see, the promise is greater because it was given without a mediator. Notice verse 19. He says, and it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. When God gave the law... There in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, the setting was awesome. It was ominous. Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and suddenly a cloud descends upon the mountain. And God's in the cloud. And there's thunder and there's lightning and there's fire. And and, and the people were just, you know, they were freaked out by the ominous of the law that was was given. And God told Moses, tell no one to come near the mountain lest they die. It was this very holy, ominous moment in the history of Israel. 
And God was the author and the giver of the covenant of the law, and he was present with, Mount, with Moses on Mount Sinai when it was given. But Moses is the mediator between God and the people. And, 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 he, and Paul mentions something here that we really don't know exactly how this was, but Acts chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 2 imply this as well, that there were angels also involved in the mediation and the giving of the law. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, we talked about this last week. Remember, we talked about how in um, Genesis 15, God makes this promise to Abraham and they're going to make this covenant. Remember what they would do when they were you know, going to sign an agreement? They'd get all these animals and split them in half and they would meet in the middle of the animals and that was kind of the way that they you know, shook hands. Aren't you glad we just shake hands today and don't do all that kind of stuff? And, and, uh, but God doesn't show up to meet Abraham in the middle. Abraham falls asleep and then God shows up. Because the point was, I'm doing all this. It's all me, Abraham. It's not going to be I do my part and you do your part, but it's, it's all me. But there was no mediator involved. It was God meeting with Abraham, and he made this promise. It was God coming to Abraham friend to friend. And so the law or the promise has priority over the law in the way that it was given. There was no mediator, and so the law was temporary. The law required a, a mediator, whereas the covenant of promise was permanent, and there was no mediator required. And then verse 21 tells us also the promise has this priority in that it's greater than the law because the law couldn't give life. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. The law couldn't produce life because it was impossible to keep the law. In the book of Romans, Paul puts it this way. He says, there's a righteousness of God that is apart from the law. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the law brought righteousness and it brought life only to those who could keep it. And the problem was no one could keep it. We're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the law, the, the promise is, is superior to the law because the promise brings forth life. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Now we come to the second purpose of the law. The law was meant to be a jailer. Look at verse 22. But the scripture, that's the law, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Paul paints a picture here of imprisonment. The bars of the cell are sin, keeping us confined. The scripture, the law, put us in prison because it pointed out our sinful condition, that all of us were guilty. So we sit in prison by sin. And the law cannot help us because the law is what's put us in prison by showing what we are guilty in our sin. Now, some protest and say, I'm not, I'm not a prisoner to sin. There's a simple way to prove that. Stop sinning. 
<laughs> it's that simple. I'm not a prisoner. You know, some people say to me, like, I can stop drinking any time that I want, you know, as they almost are staggering to fall over. And I'm like, okay, then stop. And they can't, you know. We can't stop sinning. It's part of our, our nature. So we're in prison to that. But, it, but if you can't stop, then you're in prison to the law of God. Only faith can break us out of the confinement of sin. The law of Moses can show us clearly our problem and God's standard, but it cannot give us freedom that only Jesus can give. So the freedom is given to those who believe. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He says, when the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little further. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus who says, come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The third purpose of the law that Paul points out here is that it's to guard us. Look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterwards be revealed. Paul's saying, before faith came, in other words, before we were saved by faith, before we lived our lives by faith, we were kept under guard by the law. Now note here, Paul's using a different word and different idea than the one in the previous verse where he said the law confined us. The idea here in the word guard isn't speaking of confining, but more of protecting. It's like being in protective custody. That there's a sense in which we were in prison by our sin under the law. That's confinement. But there's also another sense in which the, the law guarded us, kept us in protective custody, we could say. How does the law protect us? See, this is the good side of the law. It protects us by showing us God's heart. God says, hey, I love you, so don't do this because this is going to hurt you. Those of you who are parents, we need to, to learn to tell our kids not just what God says, but why he says it. Sometimes we say, you know, don't do that. Why? Because the Bible says not to. They, our kids and we, we need to know the heart of God behind it. That's the, the purpose of the law is to show us God's heart in protecting us. It also protects us by providing a foundation for civil law. And the things that God has set up for the way society would function. It protects us by showing us the best way to live. So in these ways and more, we are kept under guard by the law. It's good for us. Finally, the law, Paul says, was our tutor. Verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, some suggest this word tutor should be translated schoolmaster, but I actually think it's stronger than that. I think taskmaster would be a better term. It's like a disciplinarian. The real purpose of the law was to keep Israel's nose clean, to teach them from right and wrong, to keep them out of trouble until the time when Jesus would come and save them and change them and give them a new heart. That's the new covenant. That's the promise of the new covenant. So the law was a tutor. But notice what he says in verse 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You see? When a child has grown, he doesn't do away with the disciplines and the lessons that he learns from the tutor. If he's smart, right? 
Your kids, as you're training them up, as they get older and they turn 18 and now they're on their own, hopefully they're not going to just discard all the lessons that you have taught them. This is the relationship that we have to the law of God. We learn from it and we remember our lessons, but now we don't live under the law anymore. We have a new relationship. The new covenant where God says, I'm no longer writing my, my law on tablets of stone, but now I'm writing them on the tablets of your heart. It's the whole idea that we're going to get to in chapter 5. Pastor Pete's going to teach on the whole idea of walking in the Spirit and what that looks like. When we came to faith in Christ, things changed for us. We have a whole new standing and a whole new relationship to the law. That's Paul's point. Now, Paul wraps up this section by laying out four blessings that are ours that we'll quickly go through in verses 26 through 29. The first is that we are granted sonship through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, God is no longer our judge, but now he's our father. Next week, Pastor Aaron's going to take us into chapter 4 where he's going to throw out this whole idea that Paul goes into about adoption. And here's the key. I'll give you the key point of it right, right here tonight. That adoption, we think of usually adoption in the way of, of a baby being adopted, right? Most people, they adopt babies and they bring a baby into their house. Well, God adopts us. We come into God's family with an adult status, meaning that we have all the rights that are available to us as adult sons in his family. That's the point. So we are his sons. God is not the father of all humanity. We need to note that. He's the creator of all human beings, but he's not the father. He's only the father to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. First blessing, he's granted us sonship. The second is we're identified by our relationship to Jesus in verse 27. He says, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And the phrase baptized into Christ speaks of our, uh, us being fully immersed into the family of God. It's a phrase that speaks of our identity, that we are fully covered in Christ. You see, we simply aren't associated with Jesus, but we're identified with him. So that if he's a son, so are we. If he stands righteous before God, so do we, because we are now in Christ. This is the idea. If he has free access to the throne of God, so do we, because we are in him. If he has victory over spiritual powers, so do we. This is the idea, because we are in him. So we're identified by our relationship with Jesus. Here's the third blessing. We're all one in Christ. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is so good. I love this. In Christ, we belong not only to God as his sons and daughters, but we belong to each other as brothers and sisters. We're going to be spending eternity together, guys. I hope you like the people in your circle groups. <laughs> You're going to be spending eternity with them. 
God's going to have you living right next door to them. You know? I mean, it's awesome. Think about that. Sons and daughters. In Christ, this is what Paul's saying. There's no distinction of race. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, God chose to have a special relationship with the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel. But when Christ came, God's promise was fulfilled that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And that includes every race, color, language. We are all equal in Jesus. And in this crazy culture where there's all these race conflicts that people want to talk about, we set the example of what that looks like, that unity in the body of Christ in Jesus, that we are all one. Can I get an amen to that? There's no distinction also of rank. There's neither slave nor free. You know, nearly every society in the history of the world has developed a class system. Circumstances of people's birth and wealth and privilege and education have always divided people. But in Christ, those divisions don't exist. There's no upper class and middle class or lower class. We're all equal sinners saved by grace. There's also no distinction of gender. Paul says neither male nor female. In the ancient world and even some places today, women were considered to be second class citizens. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus elevated women. The first person that Jesus shares or or reveals himself to be in the Messiah to was a woman and a Samaritan woman. I don't have time to get into that, but you guys know that the Jews hated the Samaritans. First person Jesus reveals himself to after the resurrection was a a woman who used to be a prostitute and was demon-possessed. Jesus was always elevating women. And the body, in the body of Christ, women and men, they're seen as being equal. Now there is a difference that God sets out in the way of headship as it relates to in the church and in the home. But as it speaks to the possession and blessing and inheritance that we have in Christ, we are all one, he says. And this is the point that Paul is making here. The fourth blessing that we receive for being in Christ is that we are heirs of the promised inheritance. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If we are Christ, linked to him, his sons and daughters of the faith, we are heirs of the promise. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans eight seventeen. Check this out. He says, you are joint heirs. I have a joint checking account with my wife i have a joint savings account with my wife that means she could tonight empty both of them out (laughs) and leave me if she wanted to you know she has access to that paul says we are joint heirs with jesus that everything that is his belongs to us. That God the Father has appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. That's what Jesus and because we are in him and we're joint heirs of what belongs to him. We're de- destined to receive the blessings and resources and riches. And the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, that we're coming back with him. When he sets up his kingdom, that we're going to rule and reign with him. I don't know about you, but I think that is something to be excited about. Amen? All right. So I think you have some things to talk about tonight in your groups. 
as we wrap this up. Wonderful blessings of who we are in Christ. Wonderful position we've been set free from the the law and we have the promise of grace. And so, Father, I pray tonight that you would bless our discussions, that you'd bless our conversations, that in these circle groups, Lord, there would be just a time of, of iron sharpening iron, us stirring each other up in the ways of the Lord. And we ask these things tonight, God, in Jesus' name.